1: You better watch your way through
2: the day. Hey, Nakedly Examined Music listeners, this is Mark Meyer. I'm going to do something a little different this time. As most of you probably know, I started a new podcast this summer covering entertainment more generally, where I have conversations with my co hosts and often with performing artists, not about the specifics of their work, but about how we take in media genres, styles, tropes, how our attitudes towards different types of media differ. We're interested in why we watch and listen to the things we do. So there have been a few music-related discussions as part of that series. But what you're about to hear is the first one featuring a returning guest from Nakedly Examined Music, that is Ken Stringfellow from The Posies. And I really enjoyed that discussion and wanted to share that with you, Nakedly Examined Music listeners, with some bonus bits. Since I interviewed Ken back in 2017... He's released the final Game Theory album, Supercalifragile. And you're right now listening to Valerie Tomorrow, a song that is co-written by Scott Miller, the leader of Game Theory, and Ken. And Ken is, of course, singing here. Jonathan Sagal is also playing some keys and guitar. Now, this is an album that was started by Scott, who had gotten Ken as his producer shortly before Scott's suicide in 2013. Most of the songs do feature Scott singing the lead part, playing guitar. This one happens not to feature him at all, but it is one of his compositions, deserves to be on this record. And I especially wanted to bring this up because Scott Miller as Game Theory and then later as The Loud Family is just a wonderful example of the kind of artist that I refer to in the discussion you're about to hear where he didn't have any big hits but is just a consistently brilliant artist someone who I would have loved to interview for this podcast so enjoy the discussion about enjoying singles versus enjoying artists here with Ken and then after the full Pretty Much Pop episode plays I'll throw another song that does feature Scott singing from that album at the end If you want to hear more of that podcast, you can find it at prettymuchpop.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find more about Nakedly Examined Music at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. As always, I invite you to support the effort at Patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music. I'm actually going to go right now and type in there, only for the supporters, some general words of update about this podcast, about my own musical journey, about the episode that I recently recorded and lost completely. So maybe that'll give you a little incentive to go support the podcast. I also want to mention another podcast you might enjoy, Andy Frasco's World Saving Podcast. He's a musician, and he talks with notable personalities ranging from hit artists like Portugal the Man, comedians like Todd Glass and Gary Goleman. And when he sits down with a guest, he really digs in on what motivates them, what keeps them going. If you've ever caught an Andy Frasco in the UN show, you'll know the energy Andy puts into his art. This podcast is no different. Go listen. You'll see what I mean. Available at andyfrasco.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Pretty Much pop Culture Podcast. Today we're talking about how we listen to music. Do we focus on individual songs, more on the artist, some other way? This is Mark Linton-Meyer playing all the hits, only the hits. And if the least common denominator doesn't like the hit, then
3: I'm too insecure to like it. Wow. Whoa. That just lowered the bar pretty low, I have to say.
4: I'm <laughs> Erica Spires. I'm in New York City. I'm a classic. I like the second track that's always released, you know? Never want to be too big of a fan of the first.
5: And I'm Brian Hurt, and my music education was a mix of Magic 104 classic rockin' oldies and whatever Mark put in the tape deck. So, fair warning, I think I may have just set the bar a little lower still. And our special guest from such groups as the Posies, R.E.M., perhaps you've heard of, and big star, Mr.
2: Ken Stringfellow.
3: Yes, here I am, uh, coming to you somewhat live and slightly delayed from Bothell, Washington, Ken Stringfellow here. I consistently put immense amounts of effort into making records that nobody hears.
2: This is just one of those discussion topics that came out of the music podcast, which Ken has appeared on, talking about his individual songs. And with some of the guests, we get sidetracked into actually talking about things that are not you, things that are not (laughs) the guest in particular. What? Not that song in particular. Okay, this is over. I'm out. (laughs) And those are fun. But I do tend to rope them in because we have to get through, you know, a couple more songs to talk through in detail. So, this is the place where we can let loose and just freeform about these habits we have. We can (laughs) use your experiences
5: as uh, test cases, as exemplars, as things to avoid. Though I've got to say, people should go listen to that Nakedly Examined Music podcast. It was really good. What was the number, Mark? I think it was 49, but was it 39 actually? It is. 39
3: 39. is the new 49.
5: Nakedly Examined Music at number 39. All right, go listen to that and then come back to this. 2017. We'll wait for you.
4: Ken, you're really good. I mean, you probably know that. I didn't know that. I am not as good at seeking out music as I used to be. So I was really excited. Thank you, Mark, for sharing Ken's music as well as your podcast. Sincerely, and I shared it with my husband, which he's so funny. He's usually one to share things with me. And he's like, Who are you sending me music? And I was like, I know, it's like college all over again. So he was really enjoying it as well. And he's quite a musician in his own right. So now I'm excited to go look at your giant canon of work.
3: Oh, wow. Yes. Well, <laughs> I didn't do the 1812 Overture. <laughs> But we often get confused. Long last names, Tchaikovsky string fellow, impossible to keep track. (laughs) But thank you very much. Sure. So Ken, as being immersed in the biz, do you still feel
2: like you have a independent identity as merely a listener, a fan of lots of things apart from your direct business associations with the artists in question, such that you have an opinion on this? Is it the song or the artist? Where do you start on this?
3: Right, well, first of all, I'm not fully independent of my dealings as a you know music producer because I'm so immersed in it all the time. I mean, I'm, if I'm not playing a show, I'm definitely working in the studio. I work like 390 days a year somehow. That definitely changes my relationship with music and there, there probably are some unfortunate side effects to working on so much music all the time and you know a lot of the artists i work with are not known so the records don't get into the general conversation i'm lucky if they do it happens now and then but there's always like a general conversation of touch points or reference points in music that we're all talking about you know generationally etc and i've made some of those records but they are few and far between so i should put all that in there however of course as a songwriter in every genre of music that I work on or listen to, it's hard for me not to gravitate towards stuff that is based on composition. I mean, I do listen to non-compositional music like free form or improv or electronic trance, whatever.
4: Don't get Mark started.
3: Um, <laughs> yes, but songs scratch my brain in the way that I need it scratched more than anything else.
4: So, Mark, can you tell us why this particular subject came up? Why you posed it to? the Pretty Much Pop podcast.
2: Just one of the fundamental things that I always feel like why I am, as a musician, why my sensibilities are superior to that of the common human, that's, of course, just the snobby thing that all musicians do, is deride everybody else for just following what's dished to them on the radio, whereas we Even if you don't even play an instrument, (laughs) you can fancy yourself fancy by, uh, going to the record collection and diving in more deeply and talking about the obscure things and side projects related to particular artists. And that is the way my own record collection, my CD collection is structured is large volumes of things by the same artist. And then I, you know, went on and did that with this. Nakedly Examine Music Podcast, where that is entirely the point, is I will listen to somebody's catalog all the way through pretty much and listen to the heck out of a couple songs. I feel like I come up with a very different, more personal connection to the body of work than I would, you know, just kind of relating what's come down to me or what's been thrust on me like a commercial jingle.
3: I have to say here that I'm a parent of a teenager. And so the radio in the car, for example, is going to be her insistence of what we listen to. So I do believe there's a way to navigate both of those extremes that you kind of laid out there. You know, I would never have chosen to listen to pop radio, for example, on my own steam. But having been sort of forced to, and (laughs) see, yes, it's forced upon us. There are some good songs being written out there and put into pop radio. There are good minds on the task. That is a side discussion, I suppose, of... Can popular music be good, and can good music be popular? Like I I think we all saw this equation get turned on its head in 1991, when alternative music that had been bubbling under for a decade or more finally like became the mainstream, and then became new metal, and that, that was sad. But I also feel like the fight that we fought, for example, if we're all roughly the same generation, and I actually don't even know, is no longer the fight for people younger than we. They don't really have that dichotomy of like, ooh, there's major label fingerprints on this because, well, there aren't anymore (laughs) in a way. That whole slaying the dragon of the evil corporate empire, it was slain pretty much or it won or it morphed into a new kind of thing. But that fight isn't being fought anymore, I find in the younger generation.
4: Yeah, I feel like it's not there. I mean, the the friends I know who are making music and trying to get into It's not even about getting signed, that's not even a conversation, it's like how many plays can they get, and can they get picked up maybe by somebody for a TV show so that they can get on a soundtrack. It's so scary to think about how they're actually going to make their money. I know very few people who just travel around in a band anymore.
5: I think that's it, Erica. It's how do you make money? and. Do you even know what the right channels are? And there's a new thing coming along and well, I could try it, but is this going to be a big waste of time or is this going to be a money maker because all these things that were just part of the old way of doing it, they're just they're not channels anymore or even if they seem like they're lucrative now, there's no real point of entry because you have to be a, a really a big act. To make money that way, because you're not going to be. I mean, if you're going to be selling a CD, I guess you have to be at Starbucks because they're the last place that sells them, as far as I can tell.
3: I think Whole Foods. I think you can get them at sometimes at the checkout at Whole Foods every now and then. The platform waste of time thing. I can't tell you now how many of these I've tried. Somebody will pitch me like, "Oh, we have this company or site where we do this aggregate pitching or a searchable library, or 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 or." And uh, your songs for sure should be in there because we'll even push them to people, etc. Sort of like pitching for, for synchronization and whatever commercial TV film. So you spend like an afternoon like uploading your stuff and putting it all organized and make a bio and put a picture, and then nothing ever happens. So, so I've done that like two or three times, and it's a waste of time. I don't even know what's in it for them. I don't know even know why they're doing it. Probably most of these sites that I've done that with probably don't even exist anymore.
2: They're looking for a new, you know, if people aren't listening to radio, they're somehow, for some reason, going to be listening to, actually, people do listen to Spotify radio and look at the playlists on that. Like, that's a pretty powerful, getting in a playlist on Apple or Spotify will get you, I guess, is an entry point that maybe there are more of them than there were opportunities on radio. But, it seems like it's going to be less exposure per opportunity.
4: Mm -hmm. Do you know, I was listening to something the other day where they were talking about how difficult it is to have more choice. And I think like, so when I, I know part of when I was like really looking for new music, I was in high school or I was in college, mostly in college because I was spending a lot of time alone and I would go to record stores and just listen to stuff. And I'd pick up a couple CDs, take them home and listen to them for a long time, go back next week and do the same thing. But there were only so many CDs I could get through in the genres that I liked, right? Now it's like, you can find anything. Like I go on Apple Music and I'll like find one artist and I can go to, uh, yeah, it's great that I can go down like and find all their deep cuts, but there's so many adjacent artists and genres that it's absolutely overwhelming at times. And rather than being more excited because there's more to choose from, I think I was more excited when there was less and I could actually feel like I, I was making some progress.
2: So I feel like what you're talking about is what the record store worker, say, always had. They're already kind of broken free from, or the person who works at a college radio station, if they've broken free from what's being delivered to them, then they've got this giant collection, which is sort of the opposite kind of music snob from what I am. I will get attached to particular artists, I think for exactly the reason that you're pointing out, Erica, that the sheer volume Almost gives me a sense of vertigo. So I'd rather like get another album by the first guitarist from Genesis (laughs) growing gradually out of my comfort zone than if I just hear a song from, you know, entirely randomly. Like I don't even know what I'm hearing. Like unless I know a context, I kind of don't know whether I should like this person or not, which is a weird way of putting it. It seems like my listening habits are somehow inauthentic. Then if I, I can't even judge whether I like something or not unless I know whether. This guy is a bona fide artist who has released a bunch of albums or, you know, is really smart or is just some
4: one off hack right?
2: collaborative. Yes. Yes. Some like the monkeys that have the appearance of a, you know, it actually was a genius product. There's a reason why those monkey songs were so huge, but it was a very manufactured. You know, you couldn't even rebuild that particular chemical combination.
3: I think like the Star Factory thing and our basic mistrust of a manufactured product, I guess that exists, but it's so obvious now, I suppose. I suppose like because back in the day, like major label money could sneak into and fund all kinds of things under the radar. But then again, the question is why is manufactured stuff bad? Going back to like Brill Building era, the best minds of a generation were there to churn out hits, and some of them were really good and enjoyable. We give those songs a pass. Why wouldn't we give a pass to that in the modern era?
4: What's Brill Building?
3: It is a place where lots of songwriters were basically employed by publishers, but it really Uh means that whole generation of early 60s hit songwriters, kind of generally New York-based that you know were behind most of the chart successes of the day, but included, you know, Carol King and Jerry Goffin and Paul Simon was part of that. A totally manufactured world in a way, but basically the underpinnings of almost everything we love in 60s pop.
5: Well, they have stood the test of time because they have. Maybe we'll be able to answer that, Ken, on current day ones 20 years or 50 years from now. Maybe we just don't have that context of time to know the the answer to that.
3: Do you think there were people, I mean, I guess there were people who were scoffing at whatever somebody who had a, like one of those hits written for them. What's the band with Midnight Confessions? I mean, the grassroots. Do you think people are like, Oh my God, no, this is completely manufactured because it was. Or do you think people were less cynical in that time? I, I really think that those songs were enjoyed. At that time, too, when classic rock radio basically started, or oldies radio started while those oldies were almost current. I don't know how much time they need to stand before they're vetted.
4: Yeah, I don't know. Also, like if you go like a generation before that, I feel like we definitely had more stars like we do now. if you're going to, like to the golden age of film. A lot of those stars were singers, and their songs were hits, and they were all written by, mostly written by composers, right? Like songwriters, classic American songs. A few years later, we got out of that kind of like star thing, and not that we still don't have them, but like bands started coming in. Like more individualistic bands, songwriters, poets, things like that. Now it feels like we're back into, maybe it's because there's so much now that the only things that can really get through are these stars again. And you have the occasional, sure, band that breaks through, but... It seems like we're swinging back the other way on the pendulum to let's give a song to this person because they're already a, they're already a hit.
2: Well, you're also pointing out a, a midpoint between worship of the artist as a genius and I like this individual song is just a group that, you know, often like the Doors, everybody's going to say, oh, it's Jim Morrison was a genius or something. And that's why I like the Doors. But no, actually, probably why you like the Doors is that combination of people. And it's hard to see someone as an individual genius when actually you're looking at the craftsmanship of a bunch of people working together. Like That is just a little bit antithetical to the Picasso model.
5: I think you suppose a level of thought going into this that some listeners don't have. And I kind of said this early, and I'm going to play the role of the naive here, because... I sort of am, and I've really come at music from the standpoint of I consume what's been on the radio, or what's been put in front of me. So when someone says, I like the Doors, that person might really mean, I like the Doors songs that have been played to me. They never went and got a Doors album, or nowadays went online and found the B-sides, or the Deep Guts, or the whatever. Their knowledge of the artist and the artist's songs kind of all get mushed together into one thing. Mark delights in telling a story about me that's a pretty stupid thing I said, but you know, I guess it was just ignorant. It wasn't stupid. I thought Lou Reed was a one-hit wonder. But you know, in my defense, I had only ever heard "Take a Walk on the Wild Side" because it's the only song that had ever been played to me on the radio. So, like, what did I know? You learn better, you do better, right? So, I was pretty sure Mark was going to say that on this podcast, so I wanted to scoop him. I believe your witticism was: they couldn't do Lou Reed on Two for Tuesdays because he's only got one song. There you go. That's that's. Thank you, Mark. That that was it. And um, okay, so I can live with that shame, but. When you were 16, (laughs) that's right. But the truth is that hasn't changed all that much for me. In part, it's just the way I consume the various channels of pop culture. I don't spend my free time seeking out new music the way I do seeking out other kinds of things. So that's still how I consume it. I just think that that's going to inform this question about whether people have something, have a connection to an artist or their product. It may not be a different thing for them.
3: See, I have to say that a good song, even if it is manufactured, it has the potential to not be a product. There are even like jingles from my childhood that like kind of got me and if I heard them today, you know, I'd get a little tear because of the time period they represent, etc. I mean, music does its job, which its job is to be magical. I mean, it's to stir our emotions. And there of course there are tricks that songwriters could use, but they don't always work. Not every calculated, manufactured song is a hit. There's an X factor that if people really knew what that was, then we'd be done. We would have to move on from something and art would be finished. But we don't know what that is.
5: Ken, I don't mean to imply product as a a negative connotation, just at the end of the day, we're not listening to an artist. What we're listening to is a song that's been put together and put out there. There's the thing coming out of the radio or off the computer that is going into your ears, and that's the thing we ultimately are connecting with.
3: True. But a great artist, I think, can have an impact that it comes out through a number of tentacles and a number of ways that it weaves into pop culture. For example, I mean, the Beatles, to use the most obvious music one, had immense generational impact. You could have not listened to the Beatles. You could have avoided them and said, okay, I'm not listening to the radio. I'm not going to buy their records. I dislike the Beatles. They look funny, blah, blah, blah. And you would still have been influenced by them because they altered the pop music landscape. You don't need a, a direct knowledge of the artist for them to have an emotional impact, for example. You don't need to know their bio. If it works, it works. I can say one other thing is that I've experimented quite a bit with going and performing in countries, for example, where I don't have a lot of context, whether that be Mauritania or Bhutan or whatever, where people you know, know about rock music in a general sense but maybe don't listen to it that much on the average. And playing my music, which is already obscure even in my own culture, and it can still totally work. You know, the songs, even with the language barrier, can totally connect. So I have to say that it's noble to go and dig deep on an artist if that's where your curiosity takes you, but I wouldn't say it's necessary.
2: Yeah, I think world music is a great example of the opposite tendency to what I'm talking about is I'm just open to, I certainly don't understand where the artist is coming from. If I don't know the tradition, I don't know the language, but yet... Let's pull up something from Brazil. This is cool. Like, there is the logistical problem of how that will actually reach my ears, given that, you know, I'm not going to just randomly listen to something, but like, you know, somebody posted it on YouTube. It's linked from a link from a link. David Byrne likes this artist, something like that.
3: I wonder if, like, when I'm playing in those places, if I am, if they're like, oh, I just heard some American music. Possibly, right? Maybe I am like world music to people in other countries. But again, If you were just like cycling through, like, okay, I'm going to do a deep dive on African jazz from Ethiopia from the 60s and 70s, I still guarantee you that probably some artists will communicate with you or touch you or connect to you more than others, even without much context. And then we have another thing. Singer, like the actual, not just, I mean, the actual voice versus the composition that they're wrapping their voice around. Nothing to do with artist, just somebody's timbre. Can they make a mediocre song something you want to listen to?
2: Yeah, I don't think it has nothing to do with artists. I think it's just a different sense of artist. Obviously, that what Erica was referring to is, you know, these stars, these hit makers that connect to you. It's because of their personality, because of their voice. And in fact, that's kind of what, when you get too worshipful of a particular, whether it's a songwriter or a singer or whatever, then, you know, this is where the madness of fandom lies. That I've got Madonna's pubic hair. (laughs) <laughs> that I want to sell oh you. Oh,
4: God, come on. That
2: okay, well, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. from a film. It's
5: from a film. From Slackers.
3: Either way. <laughs> it's a pubic what? hair she wore
5: on set. Great. So. What kind of defense is this? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. You
2: can say a rude thing as long as someone has said it on film. <laughs> I see, I see.
4: <laughs> oh, God. I love embarrassing Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Just by laughing oddly at things that he says and bringing them to life. Okay, where were we before that remark? Well, whenever
5: I want to stop a conversation that's ripping along, I have a new tool in my <laughs> toolkit there. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> it's
2: always been in the artist's interest to develop a cult of personality, to say, don't you want to buy everything that I put out? And it was actually the industry that was sort of standing in the way and saying, I won't publish this album because I don't hear the single on it, or I will not let you release your random demos. You are signed to my label, and everything you do must have my approval on it. If you do something for another album, I will, in fact, make you use a pseudonym. I remember Madonna playing on somebody else's record and had to be called something else. But now we've gotten with the streaming culture and, and this, you know, there's a sea of stuff out there, so it is easier to just listen to the next song by Taylor Swift or something if this is somebody that you've, It's definitely all parasitic upon, I think, what was in the pop landscape. You know, unless you inherit a love of an obscure band from your friend who loves that same obscure band or, you know, there are obviously different now just forums. Somebody can, you know, recommend some obscure band and you can glom onto that and that becomes part of your soul. But once you make that connection, it's sort of natural the way things are organized now, at least for artists that don't like Ken play under five different band names and you can't figure out without looking at their wiki page what their oeuvre actually is. But for many of them, it seems like with the new culture would make it more common, would make it easier for people to develop this sort of cult of personality around themselves rather than, you know, everybody's going to move on to the next hit.
4: I think it goes back for me at least to like, there's so much happening. And also not having a physical album in front of you nearly as much, you're not reminded of that as much. So I just think that like, even writing, right, when I write now just for myself, it's going to be on the computer because it just makes sense. But I also feel a bit less connected to what I'm writing in a way because it feels fleeting because it is on a computer, which is silly. But having something physical in front of you, it'd be interesting to have this conversation with a younger person and see if they still feel a strong connection to something that's not always like in front of them that they can't hold the album and the lyric sheet in their hands.
3: I have to invoke my vast experience with my 15-year-old daughter. She's of course very into she loves Nirvana. Nirvana is probably her favorite artist and she does have a couple of Nirvana physical albums, but most of what she participates in in Nirvana world is via like YouTube or etc. And then there's the artist Lil Peep. Are you all familiar? You know, he's now, he's already deceased. He, you know, kind of rap, pretty popular, died very young. I can guarantee you she's never had a physical album from this artist, but she knows every song and is very into it and is feels very connected to this person who is actually not living and neither is Kurt. So maybe I should start to worry. What is it that this artist, say Lil Peep represents? I mean, I actually do think that his songs were extremely catchy and Though it's coming from a genre that I don't really participate in, I can definitely respect the gift. There's a gift in there of conveying the point in a way that's super memorable. Like There's many what we call earworms. And I think earworms are often looked down upon, but I have to say that for me, music is simply effective communication. So whatever effectively communicates in a moving way is valid, right?
4: So does she listen to like say an entire album by Nirvana or is she more more than likely to like gonna pick out a few hits that she likes?
3: Um now here's what's interesting. When she has the physical album, which she has very few, yes. So the physical album demands that kind of approach. So when she has a, a CD of Nevermind, she has a CD of 21 Pilots blurry face and those get into loops where she listens to the whole thing but take away those constraints and almost never she more listens to like playlists that might have her favorite artists woven into them
2: yeah my kids are 16 and 19 now and for one thing i was never able to interest either of them in my collection of cds like they were never even curious (laughs) to like come down in the basement and pick out something, and they've just been raised in the streaming culture, and both of them have connections to a few artists, but even those, I feel like what I'm subjected to in the car will just be a few songs by that particular artist. Yeah, there's definitely not the devotion to the the album format. I mean, that's getting sort of... I don't know if I'm going to do any more albums. It seems, I know of quite a few... You know, unless you have a market that's ready to, to snatch it up, you can seem to generate just as much interest among people by releasing three songs as releasing 15. So, unless you have the output that you want to release.
3: Uh, especially if, <laughs> like me, if, you, if the interest is generally zero. <laughs> well, then mine is at negative
2: five <laughs> if yours <laughs> is at zero. So, there you go.
3: One other interesting thing I've never heard my daughter, Aiden, talk about never mind the album even though she listens to it. So she never goes, oh, never, never mind, great album. She simply will say Nirvana is a great band, Kurt was a great artist. She will, however, talk about the album Banditos by 21 Pilots, their last release, which she has never listened to all the way through or ever owned. But the stuff around 21 Pilots' releases, they have such good you know, marketing imagery, they create these whole worlds and there's backstory to everything. Everything they do is a clue or an Easter egg into like a deeper part of understanding the puzzle of the album that they kind of present. Um, that she's totally into it and has never owned or probably listened to the whole album all the way through. Now that's kind of freaky, right? I
4: don't know. You guys are giving me a lot to think about. If we go, Mark, on your, your issues that you've brought up here, some of your talking points you wanted to get to do you follow artists beyond their usually brief famous period?
2: I'm just acknowledging that my way of locking on to artists in mass is not really this r- rebellious underground. It's all parasitic on the stuff that was an earworm for me. That I really liked Heartbeat City when I was twelve. That album, and so I became a ocasic completist, <laughs> chasing down his various things. But yeah, it's just because again, I'm attributing it more to my aversion to true novelty than my superior recognition of a genius. Because in fact, this is good to talk about Okasik here in his just passing away, but in all the eulogies about him, there's you know some mention of the fact that he did stuff in the last 20 years, but not much. It's more this worship of this thing that happened in popular culture way back then and not so much what his overall musical sensibilities that, you know, okay, well, it's because of him that Weezer and some other bands were popular because he was their producer or something other like that, but not actually
5: following the artist through their solo albums. Some people will need to be told that Mark is talking about Rick Ocasek of The Cars. Everyone knows. And now I'll talk about Chilton
2: without any further (laughs) explanation. Yeah, well, let me ask, yeah, you guys that. I mean, so Brian and Erica, I mean, have you, like Erica, what's your general... When you do follow somebody, is it focusing on a particular album? I know you talked about Tom Waits before. He's a guy maybe, you know, he's a well-respected, long-standing, long-famous artist. But still, I think maybe 1991 or so was kind of his commercial peak. And that's when a lot of people were introduced to him. Or maybe 75,
3: depending on how old you are. To be honest, I think the Mule Variations is actually his commercial peak. Yes. And that was an indie album. But it's a sold almost, it's almost a gold record, if it's not maybe even a gold record by now. Interestingly enough, just thought I'd throw that into the mix.
4: Yeah, that's a. I love that album. Yeah, so I think I do tend to, yes, follow similarly. I don't go as deep divey as you do, Mark, but I think I do find people that I find reliable, and definitely doesn't mean I love every song, but I know that I'm going to like something from that album, I'm going to find something to take away from it. One who... I loved and drove eight hours twice to see was uh, Damien Rice. And yes, I own his albums, but he hasn't really produced a ton of stuff lately. And, And the stuff that's come out has been more single type. And I have to say that I'm much less interested in that. I'll listen to it, but I'm not usually into purchasing singles. If he had a whole album, I would purchase it. And I'm not really sure why that is, but I guess I just want something more to i mean, anyway. I'm talking about a physical album. I'm happy to purchase the the digital album, but just purchasing a digital single, I'm not as as interested in. I want an experience. I think out of it.
3: Does he tour behind his releases or his non releases? Does he still tour regularly? Like I'm kind of figure out how he survives.
4: Yeah, I don't think he tours a lot because I you know for a long time I haven't checked recently, but for a long time I would just go on his website and see like. Where's he playing? And he was doing a lot of like local stuff, um, Ireland, England, whatever, and just around Europe, but not as much here in the US. You know, and he's collaborating with other artists. Like, that's great if you're collaborating with other artists and learning things and, you know, maybe producing things and playing on other people's albums. But it is disappointing to really love an artist and not have new albums come out. Although I totally understand it as a musician myself. Like, I get why you wouldn't want to put that work into it when you feel like it's diminishing returns?
3: I love diminishing returns myself, but I have to (laughs) say also, because you mentioned he does other projects and whatnot and other collaborations, and I have for myself, for example, a body of work as a solo artist that does have its own following, and my releases are very infrequent. My last solo record came out seven years ago, and the last one before that, eight years before that. And... I want to be all kinds of things and I'm a wider area of interest and I need to make a living, so I'm also doing studio work quite a bit. And then I have my band also making infrequent releases. And lately I've felt like, man, I sort of need to narrow this down to give people something to go on, you know, like who are waiting for us and who still care and still support us. So I've kind of he says, after just doing a 50-date solo tour just for fun. Um, <laughs> but I will probably put more effort into my band, I have done so in recent years, and will do more so. Because, yeah, I mean, imagine just trying to keep anyone's attention at all or come back into their attention sphere at all in 2019 when you're a 30-year-old band with 50-year-old people in it that doesn't have any hit records, I should add that
4: part. I would say, it, who's not Pearl Jam? yeah, how about you, Brian? I have nothing to add on this topic. <laughs> no, you don't have a you don't have a, a musician or band that you've followed that I,
5: I would say that the maturity of my musical tastes hasn't changed in a while. There was a a scene in the office where Angela talks about not liking the general spirit of music, and I wouldn't say that about myself, but it's just really not something I seek out. I mean, I appreciate it and I'm exposed to a lot of it, but I just don't think I have a lot of curiosity when it comes to music. For whatever that's worth.
4: I would say my guess is that you would be more of an artist based person rather than a hit based person, though, because of the way that you consume other forms of media. You tend to like certain producers, right?
5: Sci fi authors, stuff like that. The parallels to other things that I consume are all clicking for me, certainly. You know, when you talk about going to the movies right there are people who have no knowledge of directors or writers and they go see movies because it's what's being advertised to them or it's what's showing and others you know we're aware of those things or showrunners for tv which are even a little less well known but right we follow these things and it's really important to us or even like cinematographers knowing what kind of movie you're going to see like that's a big thing having context we were talking about that with music when it comes to reading a book, I really have trouble sitting down to read it unless I know when it was written and what the nationality of the writer was. Like, that's super important to me to have that context, to know what it is I'm getting into and, and how I'm going to read the book. And then you read something you like, and then you want to read everything by that author. So I get all this. It's just I don't totally participate this way when it comes to music.
2: Yeah, Ken. Does this sort of follow on? Are you a, a director guy? I just saw like a, a Lars von Trier film on TV, which I would not recommend. It was The House That Jack Built. It was one that just came out, and it was actually like suffering getting through that
4: weird stuff.
2: But because it was Lars von Trier, because you know it's an auteur, mm-hmm. then I felt like, uh, oh, you know, I could kind of I should add this to my memory bank.
3: I recommend gathering the family around for movie night and then checking out Dogville. It's a little. Yeah. <laughs> That'll bring everybody up.
4: What's the and, follow-up to Dogville with Bryce Dallas Howard? That's oh, uh, the follow-up to seen. Dogville. Oh yeah, that's that's mm. just as disturbing. Check that one out as uh, the second in the evening.
2: You know, it's interesting, Erica. You say reliable. I, I it's, they're a reliable source of that. I, I feel like people throw around the word genius way too much. When oh yeah, really, I feel like someone who's a decent craftsman with a good sensibility and some soul. Like that's what I mean you could use that long term, come up with an acronym for that rather than genius, but there's still the auteur idea. I wouldn't say, you know, I want to see another Lars von Trier film because he reliably dishes up <laughs> something. You know, it's not like, you know, I will go to the Safeway again because last time I had a reasonably good experience with them. It's a, seems like a fundamentally different <laughs> association that we have with these, these artists that we sort of reliable is not the term because you expect the unexpected. You expect them, if they're firing on all cylinders, to surprise you to do something, you know, a new source of inspiration and not merely, I guess there are some musicians that Guided by Voices is a reliable band. In fact, you could probably find a new album by them every month, right? (laughs) At the rate that he puts them out. Yeah,
4: I guess I'm not saying reliable... I'm not using reliable in that sense though. I'm, I'm using it like if I know I'm going to have a an exciting experience or an interesting experience listening to an album and I've listened to several of their albums with that in mind, I know it's a reliable band for me. You know, not as in like, yep, they're just going to keep churning it out and it'll be a-okay. But like, yeah, maybe they'll come out with an album every five or 10 years, but they're really interesting albums and I'll turn to those types of people.
2: A
3: reliable shaman. <laughs> I do feel that um, you're going to get disappointed by an artist eventually, or a filmmaker, or a writer, and you know, that that's healthy. I think it's not healthy to expect an artist to be infallible. It is a bummer when they stumble, but I also feel... That nobody's perfect. I think, for like for me as an artist, like I'm kind of comforted by the fact that, like, hey, we're all bumbling. Even if you know we have good skills or you know we put a lot of care into it, we're still fallible, and that fallibility is also part of the process of being an artist and not a robot.
5: And Ken, I, I think you're exactly right when it comes to the ultimate disappointment you get from an artist. And maybe I can't speak to it in terms of music as much, but in other fields, I think there's this tension between you want to get the same kind of thing from somebody because you liked it so much but you also don't want to retread the person who made Donnie Darko said he he couldn't make a next movie that would be as successful because everyone would want Donnie Darko but they wouldn't want Donnie Darko again and so it's the sort of thing that you really are sometimes a victim of your success and I think that translates across all medium probably
4: yeah and it's so much easier I think to be a dark horse You know, to come in and and be somebody that nobody expects to be a success and then you're a success because at that point, like, who gives a shit? Nobody gives a shit about you. You can do whatever you want. You fail or succeed, it's on you. But there's not a lot of money behind it yet. Probably there's not a lot of expectation. And I think that's man, it's just a that's a constant struggle in life, I think, is once you set up good expectations for yourself around others and whatever you're doing. It's really hard to deliver again.
2: Especially if you think it's a matter of magic, as Ken was saying, that, I mean, Ken, do you even find, is it frustrating the distinction between the success of the posies versus your solo stuff or even John's solo stuff that it's just those two elements? (laughs) Like the songs should still be good, even if they're not, don't have that label on it. But yet people have,
3: were excited by a particular product and a particular arrangement and seeing those two guys. That's certainly more marketable because there's, there's more of a story. Once you have two people, there's suddenly a story like about how they get along and how they fuse their various diverse elements into one thing. I will say that as a solo artist, for my personal experience, the music is different enough because of course I've made it that way because otherwise why would I do it, that it has its own following and and it's weird like in Austria like as a solo artist I can fill like a club and then come there with John playing an acoustic show and 20 people show up. There's history in there too, and a lot of that history for our band, for example, was shaped by where we got Radio Airplay. It's plain and simple. Suddenly we're part of people's life experiences where we were played on the radio at a certain point, and we were the background of parts of their lives. And where we weren't, it's been a harder path for people to find us. We're not like live or something like that, The band with like mega hits on the radio. But it did make the story for people. It, it was the path to finding us at a certain point outside of Seattle.
2: Um, since you mentioned, didn't live was it them that they fired their singer for a little while and toured as the same band with a different singer? You know, not that this is terribly unusual,
3: but: Yes, and that singer put out a solo album called "Alive."): <laughs> <laughs> oh. They spent roughly a decade suing each other for various reasons, and now the band is back together again. I want everyone to know they're on the ultimate tour right now with Bush.
4: And are they playing old tunes or new tunes? I would yeah. assume.
3: I would assume that's all. It's an oldies tour. They didn't play in Seattle. They didn't play in. And you'd have to be from Seattle to understand why this is funny. Uh, and I hate to be this person, but now I'm. Yeah,
4: hey, you've go got me go now. for it. you Go for <laughs> it. They,
3: they didn't play in Seattle. They didn't play on the east side, or they didn't play in Tacoma. They played in Kent. Kent, for those of you who don't know, is kind of just the industrial wasteland that spreads between Seattle and Tacoma. It's like they didn't even get Thou Shalt Not Pass. You can't come into Seattle. Sorry, guys. You have to play Kent. Sorry. I hope they don't kill me. (laughs) They're definitely going to listen to this.
5: Mark, I I had one other thing I wanted to touch on on this topic because this idea of the artist versus the song, I think there is a phenomenon where the best-known song of an artist is not really representative of their work. And you get these things where, or it's just based on a band that's been around for for decades. So you know, I, I think about when Touch of Grey came out and all of a sudden these people were deadheads. It's like, well, are you though? I mean, you, you know one song that's nothing like any other Grateful Dead song. And I know you have this list of, we, we had some articles about artists who hate their most well-known songs. And in some cases, I think it may just be due to having played it too much. Ask
3: uh, R.E.M. about Shiny Happy
5: People sometime. I'll ask you about it, (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yes. Well, I mean, a song that they basically never played live and was a huge, huge hit, top 20 hit in Britain, that's for sure.
2: So you never had to learn it when touring with them? Oh, no. Because they never?
3: (laughs) No, no, no. Never played. Just
2: do it as the opening act. Do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See how they feel about that.
4: I didn't know that story. Uh, just for listeners who might find it interesting, mm-hmm. do you want to tell them about like why that was created?
3: Why the song was created?
4: Yeah, yeah. Well,
3: I, I don't know the, the backstory of Shiny Happy People, why it was created, because that was before my tenure. But all I know is that it, you know, it was a huge hit. It was kind of a, a little bit of a departure because it was crystal clear lyrics where a lot of their music had been you know, lyrically obscure or, and even sung in a kind of mumblecore way it was a duet which was a new thing for them so and it and it was a catchy sweet and like no seemingly no subtext kind of song it seemed to be like first level trying to present something that you can understand and relate to and it really worked but its earnestness i mean it wasn't representative of the band's general work and by that token the band kind of backed away from it and sort of disowned it once it worked so well i suppose So I'm not sure they ever played the song live, ever, actually. I I could be wrong. I certainly never saw them do it, and in the 10 years I spent on the road, it was like you didn't even want to mention the song.
2: Yeah, it just seems if you're cranking out a lot of albums over years and you try different stuff, and some of it, you know, it might just be a thing, a mood that you were in for a day, but then like that's what people latch onto, and it's really just you kind of quoting something else. I'm also thinking like Peter Gabriel, consummate artist, and Sledgehammer in big time. These sort of R and B quotes that are not, I don't know, I don't know. That's a, you could make a better case since he recurrently does it in several songs that this is at least part of his dna but like it's sort of divorced it does seem more like somebody who is competent quoting something or saying something you know that they're grabbing from the culture in a way that's maybe different than their most sort of introspective artistic stuff so you feel if you if respect them as an artist you sort of feel bad that that's the thing that they're known for
3: or at least they get known for something. Yeah, well, yeah, I probably w- you wouldn't have heard of them otherwise. Yeah. We like this. We like being known. <laughs> we don't always get that.
5: To close the loop on R.E.M., I looked this up on setlist.fm. They played it once in Madrid and they also played it live on Saturday night live and that was that was it. Yeah, just twice.
3: The Madrid show was on the 95 tour? It was
5: in March of 91, it says. That's got to be TV, then. That's probably a TV appearance. Oh, that, that could well be. Yep, I think that. Now that I look at it, that's probably right. They, were, they played it on Sesame Street, I believe, too. With
3: Muppets. well, that was that was scary. Something monsters. <laughs> something. Or, I can't remember how they changed the words to it. That was pretty awesome. I went to that taping actually.
4: There was a People article that said that the record company asked them for something that was happy and up tempo, and so they brought it to them thinking it would be rejected, and instead they were like, "Yeah, yeah, this one, this is going to be the hit," and it was definitely not my favorite REM song.
3: I have to um, pop in here to say that working stiff musician here. I, my session's going to start, and so I'm gonna probably have yeah. to have to jump. Get out of here! Thanks for joining us, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sorry, I have to um, bow out before we could explore every aspect of this topic, which we, of course, we're going to be able to do in one day.
4: <laughs> oh, don't be! We're we're very happy that you are a working musician.
3: Thank you. Keep on working.
4: Thanks for joining.
2: Bye, Ken. Bye, all. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Remember, you can hear more of Ken at kenstringvelo.com. And if by some chance this is your first episode of Nakedly Examined Music, go listen to any other episode. This is not a normal episode. However, to make it slightly more like a normal episode, I want to wrap up here with one more song from the Game Theory album Super Supercalifragile. This track is called Laurel Canyon, and it is more authentically a Scott Miller piece with Scott doing the singing and guitar and bass and Mitch Easter doing some drums, guitar, more synth is recorded and mixed by Mitch. So this must have been before Ken got involved. So if you enjoy Scott's work, look up Game Theory or The Loud Family. I see you can get this album very easily on Bandcamp. I should say that album also features Anton Barbeau, another of my past guests, singing one of the songs, another song sung by John, our Ken's partner in the posies, Peter Buck from REM plays on it, and I'm sure you'll recognize several of the other names there. It's a very cool album. Check it out. And if you can get a copy of Scott Miller's book, Music Colon, What Happened, from 2010, I also highly recommend that. So here is Laurel Canyon.